Coming up on Leading Edge. One characteristic of stretch experiences, your previous frames of reference may no longer be appropriate or valid in this new setting. So you have to very rapidly acquire new skills and new ways of surviving and thriving. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. A very warm welcome to this second series of Leading Edge from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason. Well, a lot has changed about the world since we recorded our first six episodes in February and March. Many of the business principles we explored have proved very timely. We've certainly had to improvise more in the workplace, keep staff engaged from far afield, be prepared to jump into leadership roles and embrace artificial intelligence and technology more than perhaps we felt comfortable. Here today to make sure we don't get too comfortable in our current job is Narendra Laujani. He's the director of the executive management program at Henley Business School, with over 25 years experience in leadership development and helping organizations to become more effective. Narendra, welcome. Thank you. Nice to have you today. And we've got a rather interesting, slightly provocative title as well to discuss, uh, and that is how to get your boss's job and keep it. You, Narendra, work with lots of people in your career, CEOs, senior executives, and you know a thing or two about how to progress in the career ladder. Maybe just tell us a bit more about how we're going to go about that. Well, perhaps we can start with the easy bit, which is what you should not do. And I believe that what you should definitely not do is to try and torpedo your boss. If you're looking to play organizational politics and to get your boss ousted, you've come to the wrong podcast. Not only will you damage your personal reputation and potentially make enemies, and this will come back to haunt you because people remember these things, they become part of an organization's folklore. And in the long term, this is simply not a sensible career development strategy. Right. So you're saying effectively that your boss is someone you need to keep on side and an ally. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a very positive way of framing this discussion. Your boss is, in fact, a very important ally. And this is because most good bosses are very alive to the fact that part of their role is to bring on the next generation of talent. And it is also the case that the boss can't be promoted if they can't be replaced. Sometimes you go places when your boss goes places. So to put it simply, you have to get your boss promoted. That's an interesting one, isn't it? So a rising tide lifts all ships, but ultimately he might be then the, 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 the next boss up. So he might still be a boss, but you've just got his job. Or she, of course. Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, I, I think a good way to approach this is that you have to start by understanding the boss's role. And straight away, this is where things often go wrong, because many people mistakenly assume that it will simply be a case of a larger version of their own current role. And this is very rarely the case. A good software developer does not necessarily make a good IT manager, and a good sales executive does not necessarily make a good sales director. In fact, there is some evidence that a good sales executive, for example, will often make for a very poor sales director. This is because the roles are fundamentally different, and you have to understand that. And I always fall back on an old organizational principle, and it's good to remind ourselves of that, That success in a junior role is usually driven by technical skills. Can you manage a database? Can you write a good marketing plan? Can you come up with a robust piece of systems analysis? In middle management, however, the game changes. It becomes about managing people. So relationship skills become much more important. 
It's all about collaborating across the organization and often influencing without authority. At the top, conceptual skills become much more critical. By this, I mean that you need a deep understanding of the landscape the organization operates in and what's possible given the resources and capabilities of the organization. So you really need to understand the context in which your boss is working, and you need to ask yourself in terms of what the organization is trying to achieve and how it intends to get there, what are the boss's priorities and dilemmas? One of my favorite questions is, what's keeping them awake at night? What are the constraints under which they are operating? Who are the other stakeholders and what needs do they have? There might be many other influential stakeholders, and my guess is that the boss's boss will be an influential player in what happens next to you. So this is a good starting point, understanding your boss's role, the context, and the needs of various stakeholders. Another important part of the process is to understand uh, what you're good at and what you need to work on. What are your own uh, strengths and weaknesses? And I want to stress that this is not about your own perception of your own abilities, because we are all capable of deluding ourselves, but rather this is about how others see you. And 360-degree feedback, for instance, which is a structured way of gathering information on how you are seen by your boss, peers, and subordinates can be incredibly useful. This is usually anonymized for your peers and your subordinates, but nonetheless, it often serves up surprises. And such feedback can become the basis of very useful development conversations. It could be something small, like a suggestion I once had that I should smile more often or be more visible walking the office corridor and having informal conversations with colleagues. But even small things like these can be transformational. Narendra has a huge smile on his face for all of our listeners there as he was de delivering that. So part of it then is about what the role is, part is thinking how you fit into it. Uh, and then you really have to think, well, well that's, that's the hill. Now, how am I going to get up there? And that involves some learning and some development. Absolutely. And um, not only does it involve um, uh, some learning, it also involves some unlearning. And perhaps uh, I'd like to start there. And uh, this is a pattern we've seen numerous times at uh, Henley Business School when we work with middle and senior executives. And the pattern is that by this stage in their careers, they have usually developed a personal recipe for what they do and how they do it. Now, this recipe may have been the basis of their past success. But interestingly, there is evidence to show that it may also be the single biggest contributor to future failure. In my formative years, to give you a personal example, I worked in either recessionary or very low-growth environments, and I became acutely conscious of cost. For the first 15 years of my career, my management recipe was cost reduction. And then I became a business unit director in a different sector, and my new role actually required me to invest for growth. I don't mind confessing, this was a very difficult transition and I had to let go of my preferred ways of working. So sometimes we have to unlearn the things that have made us successful in the past if we are going to prepare ourselves for the new and different challenges that lie ahead. 
So unlearning is also a part of the development process. But once you've armed yourself with some understanding of your strengths and weaknesses and the role, you're absolutely right. You do need to consider how you might develop yourself further. And one of the development needs I come across often in my role as director of the executive management program at Henley is the need for individuals to become more T-shaped. By that, I mean to broaden their skills while retaining their depth of expertise. Now, how do we go about developing ourselves? Development can happen in a formal setting, such as a well-chosen executive program in a good business school. Equally, we recognize that a lot of learning happens on the job in an informal way through on-the-job experiences that are often not badged as learning. In my research, I have found things that seem to be particularly influential in development. And I think you call one of these things that you have to do when you're seeking out development experiences is a stretch experience. What's one of those? Yes, a stretch experience is typically a high stakes on the job assignment, which is well outside your comfort zone. And examples that spring to mind are turning around a business unit that's in trouble or perhaps a significant international assignment. And one characteristic of stretch experiences are that your previous frames of reference and your previous learning may no longer be appropriate or valid in this new setting. So you have to very rapidly acquire new skills and new ways of surviving and thriving. And this seems to be a very powerful development process for many, many individuals. And maybe give me an example then of someone who's been on a, on a stretch experience who you've worked with. Okay, uh, perhaps I can cite my uh, own experience because um, I, I carry the scars from my own career. And I remember many years ago, I was being offered a choice of two roles in the chemical industry, uh, one in England and one in Brussels. And my then manager, Richard, invited me in for a conversation and asked me what I made of these two roles. And it was very clear to me that the role in England was something I could do straight away. I could get my feet under the table quickly. I felt very comfortable being in England and in that particular part of the business, and I felt I had the skills already. Whereas the role in Brussels was going to be a role in which I was accountable but didn't have uh, direct authority over a team that could make things happen. It was an alien environment. And um, it made me a little bit sick in the stomach. And I used this phrase in my conversation with Richard, at which point he immediately said, I think we have a decision. Uh, and just to double check, I said to him, so what do you think the decision is? And he smiled enigmatically and said, obviously, you're going to Brussels. Because that phrase, it makes you sick in the stomach, told me everything I needed to know. Now, at that time, I didn't exactly buy his logic, but I look back on it now, and it's very clear to me that my year in Brussels was a period of intense and accelerated personal and professional development, and it's a standout experience I look back on as a formative experience. So do the thing that makes you sick. Go out of your comfort zone. 
um, those are, I suppose, things we we wouldn't automatically want to do. But if we if we're not pushing ourselves and actually getting up to the next level, is going to be that much harder. Absolutely, you need to you need to get out of your comfort zone. In fact, that's almost a principle of development. That learning and development happens um, when you are outside your comfort zone. Now, taken out of context and in extremis. This is, of course, a dangerous career strategy because if you're constantly out of your comfort zone, then there will be failure. You know, there will be uh, expensive learning and mistakes will be made. Uh, and therefore, this, this challenge that you're taking on for yourself has to be combined with some sources of support. Right. And it helps enormously if you have a mentor perhaps somebody who's more senior and possibly wiser, whom you can use as a sounding board and whose counsel you can get. In my case, Richard happened to be playing that mentor role as well. He was interested in my development. So I was very lucky that I was given a challenge, but I also had uh, some support in the form of a mentor available to me. If you have a mentor then, uh... The idea is that they effectively are also going to give you some of this 360-degree feedback. They're going to tell you, not just support you, but actually tell you a few things about yourself. And that brings us on to another element, which is really important, which is reflection. Yes. And reflection is very important because we know that experience can be a very slippery teacher and the lessons learned often remain tacit and unarticulated and unacknowledged, primarily because we were busy grappling with a particular situation that wasn't badged as a learning experience. So what reflection does is that it converts the tacit learning into explicit learning. You, you begin to ask yourself, what happened and why and wh how have I grown and what might I do differently next time? And the privileged conversations, the privileged and confidential conversations with a mentor can be invaluable in facilitating that reflection. So that's when learning becomes really powerful, when you know what you've learned and that adds to your self-confidence and you can then apply that learning in a wider range of settings. Challenging your core beliefs then, I, I suppose they say you don't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. So really, we're having to be really quite vulnerable going into this process, except that it's going to be uncomfortable at first, out of our comfort zone, but hope that coming out of it, we're actually a bit stronger and we're, we're looking like this top executive now. Yes. And when I interviewed a number of chief executives on the influential development processes they had experienced, they said exactly that. It was a scary experience. It was a process in which they were vulnerable. But in hindsight, it was hugely high impact and powerful. And what it did was it gave them enormous self-confidence as a leader. And we also know that self-confidence is a very important leadership attribute because that's how you get followers. So organizationally, having the confidence and the self-belief that I can do this and that comes out of these development processes is really important. And once we've got this new, we're stronger, we've reflected, at that point, do we give up on our current job? Do we, do we stop doing the basics well or do we have to keep performing at that too? You absolutely have to keep performing. And the challenge now is that you need to start performing not just at the level of your current job, but at a higher level. 
And this may require you to volunteer for additional projects or initiatives. All too often, these conversations about, I can take this on in addition to what I'm doing, quickly degenerate into a discussion on what's in it for me. And we shouldn't go there. You need to demonstrate your commitment, go above and beyond your current role. You need to start bringing solutions to the table, not just problems. You need to constructively challenge the status quo, but also offer continuity because that's what organizations are looking for. Often they are looking for a fresh perspective, but from somebody who also understands how you get things done in our own unique context. So offering that blend of challenge and continuity. Um, And you need to show a commitment to team performance and outcomes rather than just your own individual performance. These are the kinds of things that get you noticed. We've got this job now. We've hopefully brought a few people on board with us. Uh, What other tips have you got for actually keeping this job once we've got it? I think that's a a great question. And um, I've been involved in management in some form or the other now for about 40 years. And uh, the one thing that I would say is that new products, budgets, IT systems, marketing plans, these things do not succeed or fail. People succeed or fail. And this principle that it's all about the people is at the heart of excellence in management. And what this means is that uh, the soft stuff is harder than the hard stuff. Uh, I didn't make up this soundbite. I I don't know where it comes from, but it's always resonated with me. That There are some things you can put on PowerPoint and on spreadsheets, and you can put them on conference room walls. But the things that you can't, which is the soft stuff, that's relationships and people's motivations and aspirations and skills and the dynamic of working with people, that's all the soft stuff. And this is worth repeating. Uh, the soft stuff is actually harder than the hard stuff. And often managers and leaders discover this too late and they spend a lot of time and energy fighting the wrong battles. And you need to make sure that you're focusing on the right things. And also then we just have to think about maybe when we had our old job, it was easy for us to criticize senior management. We were always being told what to do. Now we've actually got there to the new job. We're part of that team now that we used to have a problem with. So how do we change our mindset to to focus on this new leadership role we suddenly have? Yeah, I think you'll discover that as you become more senior in the organization, you are increasingly working in an environment of incomplete information and ambiguity. And this, in fact, is at the heart of leadership, that we have to make decisions when no amount of additional information is available or, in fact, will be helpful. And that, of course, is judgment. So you're now in a role where you'll be exercising leadership judgment. Now, judgment means that you will be um, making trade-offs. So in every situation, there will be multiple perspectives available to you. So for example, sales might say that the right thing to do is to launch this product now at a certain price. Finance may tell you that that would be an absolute disaster because we have no margin on that product. Now, each point of view in isolation 
makes a lot of sense. Somebody needs to synthesize these contradictions and somebody needs to make a decision. That somebody is now you. And perhaps previously, these trade-offs and these judgment calls were not visible to you. So it was easy to sit back and be critical of how senior management conducted itself. But I'm afraid this simply comes with the territory. I think at the core of every decision is having to make a choice and having to solve a problem when the answer is not implicit in the facts. And that's now your job. And it's not just dealing with ambiguity, but also the way you deliver some of this content, some of this information as a manager. And I think you believe that you need to start thinking and speaking in a more structured, strategic way. You may have the best ideas or you may have mobilized your team to come up with the best ideas. But unless you can uh, communicate those ideas in an engaging and captivating way, you're unlikely to be able to influence people and uh, to win their discretionary effort, and in some cases to win resources from other parts of the organization. So the ability to sell your ideas is very important, and good and effective communication is an important part of that process. These all sound like great tips, Narendra, for normal times. So to summarize, don't torpedo your boss, get your boss promoted, understand the job, look at your strengths and weaknesses, develop yourself, do difficult experiences, stretch yourself, get noticed, perform at a higher level, uh, and then communicate differently as well with your new team. And all of that would be pretty difficult to achieve in normal times. How do you suggest we implement all of this in the current pandemic situation when, like you and I now, we're talking down the line of an internet connection? How How do we make your tips work in the new world? Do they still work? I think they still work. I think these are good principles that work in the new world as well. There are, of course, uh, new challenges. For example, mentoring newcomers into new roles or into the organization has become very challenging during the lockdown. And while we have lots of evidence about how most people have maintained or even increased their level of productivity while working remotely, uh, the one segment of the workforce that has found it really difficult has in fact been new entrants or new appointees into a particular role. So yes, there are some some unique challenges, but uh, Thomas, there have always been unique challenges uh, at every point in history, and I don't think this is very different. I'm very optimistic that we will find new and creative solutions. We've just lived through the largest workplace experiment in history, and we've all adapted remarkably well, and I'm sure we'll continue to do that. You've recommended that we should, in order to get promoted, not just do well at our current role, but perform at a higher level and get noticed. How are we going to get noticed when we are working remotely? You will get noticed because most of your organization is probably working remotely and your results should speak for themselves. Getting noticed is not about standing on a soapbox and tom-toming what you've done. It's making sure that you've delivered results and outcomes that are tangible and which the organization and your line managers notice. 
in the same way that while working virtually, we notice what's happening to all our business indicators, I believe that high performers will also be noticed. One of the features on Zoom, you have to raise your hand to speak. I guess you have to make really make sure you make your voice heard in these team chats and conference calls we all seem to have been drawn into. Yes, you have to be heard. And um, I, I think more than raising your hand, it's really important that you appear on screen. And if you're one of those shy and retiring types, and I know some people like that, who refuse to switch their cameras on when working on Teams and Zoom, if you're not on screen, then you've marginalized yourself from whatever is happening on screen. So it's really important uh, to be professional, to be present, and to learn how to use the medium. And we have to adapt. For instance, there are awkward pauses when you're using digital technology, and that's okay. You, you learn to take that in your stride. People often will talk over each other. That's, again, normal. And you just have to be a little bit more patient with each other. I should also add that the video conferencing technology humanizes both employees and their managers. I'm sure we've all experienced uh, the cat clambering onto the keyboard or the child wandering onto the screen or somebody's uh, signed England rugby shirt hanging on the wall behind them. We've suddenly discovered a window into each other's lives. And I believe that makes for more authentic relationships and humanizes interaction, even if it is on a digital platform. Right, well, you've, you've got me sold there, Narendra. I think I'm going to be getting a promotion very soon because I'm going to be applying all of your tips. My only question is, can I come back to you if it doesn't work? Is this a 100% guarantee? Uh, I'm afraid uh, this is not a surefire formula. Um, we know that chance events and luck, such as being in the right place at the right time, matters hugely. But as one of my colleagues is fond of reminding me, luck happens when preparation meets opportunity. So you can prepare yourself. That's half the battle, but it may never happen. And we've talked about the world's changing over the last few months and doing more things like video conference calls, getting outside of our comfort zone. What do you think the three things are that you will keep doing after this crisis hopefully comes to an end at some point? What will you take away from it? I've tried to use the crisis as a way of rejuvenating myself. I've made more time for myself and rediscovered simple pleasures. Firstly, I'm cooking more. I find it very therapeutic. Secondly, I'm playing with the dog and walking the dog. And thirdly, I'm trying to invest in new learning, new skills, and new ways of working. Well, I couldn't let this opportunity pass to ask what's your signature dish there, Narendra? My signature dish is a chicken biryani, which is a staple in India. The final part of this interview, then, I just want to ask you a quick fire round of questions. Uh, if you can just tell me your answer in no more than one sentence, explain why you've chosen it. So here goes. The first question then is screens or paper? Paper. I'm old school. I can scribble on paper. I can carry it with me. It's more convenient. Vacation or staycation? It's been a forced staycation, but I'm really looking forward to a forthcoming vacation. And where are you hoping to go? Barbados. Lovely. Uh, early bird or night owl? 
Definitely early bird. I'm typically up at about 4.30 in the morning and the first few hours of the day are when I'm at my most productive and best. Game plan or no plan? I like to have a game plan, but I'm willing to let it go if the situation so requires. Outside the box or watch the box? During the crisis, very much um, uh, watch the box. I've been on Netflix for an hour a day, which happens to coincide with my hour on the treadmill. Mentor or mentee? I've been both, but for the last few years, I've been a mentor and I've enjoyed the process greatly. Brainstorm or brain fried? Uh, If you get me at the right time of the day, yes, brainstorm. Starter or dessert? The dessert, please. I like to finish things properly. So you get to the end, have a sweet tooth, and then finally, ask permission or beg forgiveness. Oh, very much beg forgiveness. Um, There are many things I would never have been able to accomplish if I had waited around asking for permission. Narendra, that's great. I hope you can forgive us for taking up a good chunk of your time there. But it was a really good conversation and some fantastic tips about how not just to get a promotion, but get our boss a promotion too, and make sure we keep developing once we get our new role. I think lots to take away, lots of food for thought. uh, And it sounds like it's going to be a three-course meal as well with a nice dessert. Narendra Laljani from Henley Business School, thanks very much for joining us here on Leading Edge. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me.